0: Hello and welcome back to Radio Rothbard. I'm Ryan McMakin. I'm executive editor with the Mises Institute. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Tho Bishop, my associate editor. And uh, it seems that we need to talk about the debt ceiling. Uh, Because the the level of hysterics and panic that is being communicated to the regular people by the so-called experts in Washington is quite heightened. Now... If uh, you're over a certain age, you've already been down this road before, you well remember the 2013 debt ceiling debate and how the basic narrative goes like this, is anyone who's in favor of uh, significant cuts to spending or is unwilling to approve a debt ceiling increase right now, immediately, no strings attached, is being reckless. Because attempts to use the debt ceiling as a way to, uh, to rein in spending at all is, uh, is just going to run the risk of defaulting on the debt. So just approve the debt ceiling now, conclude negotiations, you can work on spending later. We need more debt, we need more spending, we need a higher debt ceiling. Let nothing get in the way of limitless federal deficit spending forever and that's basically the line and if if you don't approve it the economy will collapse the earth will fall into the sun and armageddon will ensue and we've heard it all on other things too right trump uh, hysterically demanded that uh everyone pass his uh recovery stimulus bill back in 2020 which was an extra two trillion dollars of just printed money and when uh Uh, Thomas Massey uh, tried to get Congress to actually, you know, follow the law and and have a real vote in Congress. Trump went berserk and uh, called for uh, Massey to be thrown out of Congress And uh, because voting doesn't matter. All that matters is that you pass whatever bailout, whatever uh, printed money they funnel to billionaires, and that's what we're going through right now and it's just in many ways a repeat of the stimulus and the bailouts from 2008 2009 and then the 2013 debt ceiling debate under Obama and and part of that is uh, is repeating a bunch of myths about uh, what what is the deal with the debt ceiling and what is likely to happen if it's not uh, approved uh, in terms of an increase immediately and uh, I know from talking on uh, Tho's uh, Florida radio show last week that, uh, called Easy Money, it uh, airs in uh, Tampa. Good Money. Yeah, Oh, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, not Easy Money, Good Money. Money Talk 1010, Tampa AM. The opposite of Easy Money, Good Money. And... Uh, we, we got together on Thursday and we talked about what is the deal with the debt ceiling debate here and just a lot of the politics that's being discussed about it and just the, the gulf between reality and what would actually happen is just really uh, quite large here. So I just kind of wanted to start off with one basic issue here, and that's just the issue of uh, what, what are the two sides saying? on this, because we're supposed to believe that the Republicans are demanding great austere measures to, to slice down spending. And it turns out they're asking for the tiniest bit of reductions in overall spending. And in terms of the last five years, it's not a reduction at all, because spending is still just hugely larger than it was just in 2019. Uh, we're talking about two, about $2 trillion still larger than it was in 2019. If we And if they were going to reduce spending back to the trend line, it would have to be, fall by more than a trillion dollars uh, from the overall federal budget. And that's certainly not what the Republicans are asking for. In fact, what they're asking for is a teeny tiny decline in 2023's fiscal year under 2022. Uh, so what you were looking at last year... Was about 6.27 trillion in spending, and uh, it's projected to be about 6.4 trillion this year. So, the the uh, the GOP negotiators on this wanted to come down slightly under that essentially 6.3 trillion number from last year, in which it would still have you trillions up from where it was. In 2019. So the idea that this is some sort of austere measure, that this is any sort of meaningful cut, is of course nonsensical. And then beyond that, what they want is a 1% increase uh, every year for the next 10 years after that. So then we're back to increases forever from a base of about 6.3 trillion, which puts you just way above trend of where you were for the last 20 years before the COVID panic. So that just as perspective, that's what we're talking about here. We are talking about a microscopic cut uh, from a projected 6.4 trillion down to 6.3-ish. And then that's it. And then it's back to increases every year. Uh, And big increases, of course, because 1% of 6.4 trillion is, is a lot. Uh, so that's what that's what we're being told in Washington right now and apparently we're supposed to be really deeply concerned uh, about all the people who greatly suffer if uh, they enforce these sorts of cuts And I know uh, though you've worked on of course a lot of finance legislation when you were working in Congress I mean what? How does this process work, really? So, I mean, is this—why are they always talking about these 10-year deals? I mean, does that even mean anything? Isn't this essentially really just a deal for the next year? And I, I, we keep hearing about how McCarthy is negotiating it. Uh, what, is this, what does this really mean in terms of legislation? Is, <laughs> is this just like pure theater, or is this binding on anything in the future? it's it's mostly theater um though there
1: is a dynamic where you know everything has become a leverage play um and right now you're seeing one of the waves of this theater play out which is kind of the, the hostage negotiation mm-hmm. sort of dynamic right where all of the uh, reliable financial news outlets are the ones that are really pushing the doom and gloom narrative right you know crisis is this coming, the doomsday clock? Uh, I saw in a Bloomsburg headline about all of this. And so what we have right now is a political situation that in general, um, beyond the obvious disinterest in any sort of physical restraint, um, it, it's something that can only sort of accomplish anything and almost always for the worse uh, with the perspective of crisis. Um, Democrats have used this in the past with um, uh, getting, you know, the, the moderate members of the Senate, Cinema and Mansion, um, you know, hyping global warming hysterics for some of this sort of stuff. They, they were able to use inflation concerns with their Orwellian named Inflation Reduction Act, which had a whole bunch of <laughs> a whole bunch of nonsense within that. Um, but you know, it's it's a situation where the only time that you can get anything of significance done is from the prospect of crises. And so McCarthy's hand in this has been interesting because this a lot, some of this stems back to the speaker battle where some of the more sober members of the Republican caucus, people uh, like Chip Roy in particular, who was on the outside, someone that had to be converted, he's someone who had a larger say in the Republican strategy from the House on this. And so at this point, you have those members that see this reduction in projected spending as a victory, even though I, I think someone particular like Chip Roy, who I think takes this stuff a lot more seriously, the majority of members of Congress recognize that this is not a solution. I'm not trying to give Chip Roy too much credit, but I, I, I think that he he recognizes this for what it is, but they're trying to get a, a small victory. Now, the only time that we've seen really a major. Um, Again, victory is is overstating it, but, you know, a lot of the success relative, um, you know, your your article mentions that we saw a slowdown in spending in the Obama years. Um, That was where the debt ceiling negotiations played into sequestration, which is the process where kind of both sides agreed to reductions in projected spending, um, which again, not cuts, reductions in projected spending on priorities that both sides seemed to favor, Um, So it was a reduction in military spending, which led to Trump talking about how oh how how underprepared our military is and how you know so you you had that whole dynamic where people were saying our military is shot because we're not giving Boeing, you know, nearly as much money as we could be. On the other side, there were some entitlement some some entitlement spending changes that Democrats didn't like, and the idea was that they were going to create a package with with some time elements to it that would be so distasteful to both sides that they would be able to kind of kick the can down the road a little bit, they would negotiate at a different date, and that never really happened. It wasn't until Trump took office and the Republicans completely gave up the farm on spending issues because Trump wanted it that way, that you saw those sequestration restraints broken away entirely. Um, I don't think we're gonna get something quite like that this time around. I think you have fewer members that were elected on the cause of spending than you had the Tea Party wave. So there was that dynamic where the rhetoric, there were members of Congress that were at least trying to get something that they could sell back home from this newly energized Tea Party wing, um, you know, to to, to take credit for. What the Biden administration did not really calculate was the idea that Kevin McCarthy would actually be able to get enough votes. And so this was a deal that is compromised again. You know, it, it, is, it is very modest in the scheme of the larger dynamic, because it was something that Republicans could get through the moderates within the Republican caucus, while also placating the Chip Roy's in the world. It still had some opposition. You, you, you had some some of your usual. Uh, McCarthy critics like Matt Gates that said this doesn't go far enough, and and you know they're, they're not wrong about this. But the, the the nature of this bill was trying to put the burden during this larger you know legislation by crisis moment onto the Democrats in the Senate and the Biden administration. And that's exactly that I, I think that's actually playing out within public opinion. Um, there was a CNN poll. Um, I'm not gonna speak to the validity of the CNN poll, but you think if there's a pre-existing bias that they're gonna wanna promote, it's not going to be. Republicans are on the right side of this. But there was a CNN poll that showed that 60% of Americans um, thought that the proper way to deal with this was a debt ceiling increase with spending cuts. Again, that goes to the larger propaganda uh, campaign, but there is broader public support right now on the Republican side um, for a deal that works in their favor. And that has put the, the Biden administration from that pure sort of cal- political calculation standpoint in a bind that I don't think that they fully expected going in. Because I think they kind of saw Kevin McCarthy much the same way that we did, um, what was going to be a, a buffoonish, weak leader. And again, I'm, I'm certainly not going to be someone out there um, overly praising Kevin McCarthy, but he was able to, with this specific issue, achieve something with his caucus um, getting it through the House um, that, you know, I, I, to be honest, I didn't expect Havoc Camar- McCarthy had it in him. Again, it's not a larger term solution, but like that, that, that was a level of competency, um, which, which I did not expect. It's, it's not in his, his, his bio. Um, and so I think that caught Biden very flat footed.
0: Yeah, and uh, and so we're talking about something fairly mild here, but of course, I mean, why I wouldn't oppose it if they managed to uh, slow down. I mean, <laughs> uh, rather than give Biden everything he wants, I mean, a mild slowdown would be great, and that's really generally the most you can hope for in Washington is just a slowdown, and it's and Rothbard's written on this too that when you're talking about a mere slowdown in spending and projected spending, you're only increasing the budget 1% instead of 2%. This is denounced usually in Washington as some sort of cut because the idea is that Washington is entitled to a certain amount of money. And if you don't let them uh, increase the amount that they spend every year, then you're cutting uh, their money. When in reality, you're just not giving them as much as they want even though spending is actually increasing. So it's always important to keep in mind what that is. So we're looking at, of course, no real cuts, certainly beyond the extreme short term, something from 2022 to 2023. Um, But it does look like it would be a bit of a slowdown, which goodness knows is badly needed after these massive inflationary increases in the budget uh, during 2020, 2021, and 2022 I mean, really, the budget needs to be flat for 10 years to uh, to uh, to bring things back into a reasonable alignment between uh, the, the taxpayers production levels and what the government is skimming off the top. That would just that's what needs to be necessary just to get back to something that seemed normal back in uh, 2010. No increases are warranted at this time for years because they got such huge increases uh, for the past three years. But of course, we're at this higher level now and they're just going to demand uh, more growth constantly. And so uh, that's just one of the big myths uh, that's that's being thrown around is that the the anti-Biden side on this wants some sort of uh, big clawbacks on spending. But that's that's clearly not what's going on. Uh, and so you might get a, a, a welcome slowdown, but but that's it. And so you could expect, of course, we still to this day hear about the evils of sequestration back in 2013. As like you said, right? For years, the, the military's still whining about the supposed cuts they got and how they haven't been able to get ready enough um, And uh, so there's one aspect of it. The other is that, of course, welfare spending, oh, it it was never allowed to increase as much as it should have. And on top of that, of course, uh, the real problem is tax cuts. That drove up the deficit. It's never runaway spending that drives up the deficit. It's always the tax cuts um, in, in Washington think. So that's just it's gonna be the usual same stuff. You can just expect that if they get even some minor cuts this time around, we're gonna be hearing about it for years from the Pentagon and from people who want more welfare spending about how greatly Washington has suffered and how we've reduced everything to the bone and how we've approached anarchy levels uh, with the uh, the federal budget because it, it hasn't been increasing the way it needs to be. And so anytime you're just being told about how there's significant cuts being put forward in Washington, you could just be sure that you're being lied to and that there's some serious gaslighting uh, going on. Yes. How, how would we
1: refill our, all the Stinger missiles that we sent to Ukraine if, if, we, uh, if, if we embrace a slowdown in future military spending. That's a problem. What, who, 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 can, who can solve that problem?
0: Ooh. Well, and the assumption, of course, right, is that Washington's entitled to limitless spending all the time. So they can just send a few hundred billion dollars to Ukraine and you, taxpayer, owe it to Washington to, to backfill all of that, even if you had no interest in the Ukraine thing whatsoever. So, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they could stop spending. Right. Talk about. Is there any discretion? Is there any spending more discretionary than the hundreds of billions of dollars shipped to Ukraine? Uh, Possibly not. And yet it's uh, it's just being shipped out to foreign countries uh, while (laughs) crime surges in the U.S. and bridges collapse literally. Uh, So that's that's the game they're playing in Washington. I think the this one of the second things that uh, we need to be aware of about how you're being lied to in this is uh, this thing about how the U.S. has never defaulted, and I don't think we've ever covered this in detail here on Radio Rothbard. Um, is you're you're going to hear this pretty often? Is Biden goes on TV, Yellen goes on some Sunday morning show, and talks about how the U.S. has never defaulted. And there's a couple aspects to this. One, there's a there's a dumb moralistic aspect to it, like America is not a deadbeat nation. It pays its bills, um, which, of course, is absurd trying to shame middle class taxpayers into feeling like they're deadbeats if they don't support more federal spending. Of course, Biden's friends declare bankruptcy left and right. Uh, people who are at the billionaire level are corporate masters. They have no qualms about declaring bankruptcy and not paying back their bills all the time. But you, Mr. Middle-class taxpayer, you better pay back your bills or you're some kind of a deadbeat. There's there's this weird double standard on bankruptcy in America. But, of course, the U.S. already is a deadbeat. It's already uh, inflating away its debts. And so, boy, if you could do that, right... Just uh, just pay back your debts in counterfeit money or devalue dollars. Uh, fantastic, and that's what the federal government is doing uh, when it's just inflating the money supply. Oh, we don't have enough money to pay back uh, the money we owe, so we'll just uh, we'll engage in more deficit spending, uh, which takes advantage of QE, money printing, monetization of debt. That's we'll use all that to pay back our debt. So there's already a partial default going on there. But there's also just outright explicit defaults that have taken uh, place in the past. And this was great uh, recently when uh, Biden tweeted this uh, on, uh, uh, on Twitter and said, oh, the U.S., you know, he reiterated the U.S. has never, ever defaulted. And then in uh, the, one of the community notes, they said, actually, the U.S. has defaulted. They linked to a great Mises article Uh, by John Chamberlain saying, well, yeah, the US has defaulted before. It defaulted in the years after the revolution uh, when there was a delay on the loans it paid. And the federal government negotiated uh, basically a haircut on all of the loans it owed at unfavorable terms for the people it still owed money to. So that was a default right there. There was the greenback default of 1862, when they created $60 million, which was a lot back then, in demand notes, supposedly redeemable in gold, that was never fulfilled. The U.S. Treasury just defaulted on that. Probably the most notorious was the 1934 Liberty Bond Default, where the U.S. was contractually obligated to pay off its bonds in gold. And then just after FDR came in, took the U.S. off the gold standard, said, oh, sorry, we're just paying you back in devalued dollars now. So that wasn't anywhere near paying back the real value of those bonds. It was just a straight up default. And then there was the so-called short default in 1979, where uh, the U- <laughs> the U.S. just basically failed to make its payments on 122 million in treasury bills uh, due to some screw-ups uh, going on in the in the Treasury Department. Uh, short-term interest rates spiked. The U.S. was sued by bondholders for breach of contract, and yet another default right there. So there's been at least four times. The u.s. has defaulted not counting the fact that it's constantly inflating away the value of the dollars in order to pay back its current debt in uh defaulted dollars so uh it's (laughs) it's quite astounding that they even get up there and claim that but uh, they, they have no qualms about it i mean yellen just goes up and says this is the way it is there's never been a default uh and so i guess people are falling for it but the fact that this has happened before illustrates uh, that they're really just trying to sow panic where there's not nearly as much uh, cause for it as they would claim
1: And thankfully I think that the element of growing institutional uh, skepticism um, is, is seeing this more as as an acceptable outcome going forward I, I think particularly on the right there's a lot less of the the sort of institutional you know the, the, the sort of um, uh, concern about, Oh, well, obviously this is something we, we necessarily have to do. I mean, I think it's still a, a minority opinion, um, and particularly not one held by, um, uh, you know, I think a large percentage of the, the Republican caucus in Congress by any means. Um, but I, I, think that you are seeing growing questions about exactly, you know, what, you know, what obligation do we really have here in the long run? And of course, when it comes to, to this particular dynamic, um, well, it, it is certainly great to see uh, the Biden administration get fact-checked more or less in, in real time um, with Twitter community notes. The, 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 there is no, the, the, the threat of default here is both uh, uh, there, there is no fear, and there's also inevitability, right? Because in, in the short term, while they are playing the peak hysterics um, for financial news headlines to try to use that as political leverage, um, uh, Secretary Yellen, uh, it's well understood within Congress that they will prioritize uh, bond payments no matter what happens. You know, there, there is no concern there of, of people that that, you know, that, that is going to be handled um, through existing operations by prioritization of, of, of what they're going to pay out. Um so in the short term, the idea that we're gonna start, you know, defaulting en masse on treasury bonds is is is, is a complete make believe media narrative for political leverage. The other side of it though is of course, default is inevitable with the federal government. There is no way that we are ever going to pay back the thirty plus trillion dollars in the debt that everyone talks about, even less uh, likelihood of ever fulfilling the unfunded liabilities and obligations that are on the books. And inevitably, one way or another, whether it is inflation, whether it is explicit default, whether it is a mixture of the two, probably most likely, um, default is inevitable uh, given just the way that this government functions or doesn't function. It will continue to steal and pillage from the American people and those foolish enough um, to to invest with it. And it will enrich its class of patrons that benefit from it and promote their agenda. And inevitably, there's going to be a lot of people that are screwed over, either because they are making preparations now in their declining ages for benefits that they're never going to receive, whether it is the the, the continual erosion of the value of their money and their savings, it, it is both not it's an impossibility in the short term and an inevitability in the long run. And um, you know, that is something that again, it shows the extent to which um, you know, the, the, the financial media, the mainstream corporate press, um, this larger propaganda dynamic with the way that economic issues are discussed in a country as unserious as ours, um, you know, completely distorts the, the reality say nothing about having any understanding of the history um again all for the purpose of this form of governing by crisis we're going we're to ratchet up the fear to every extent we can um so that the powers that be can you know try to get away with as much as the the, the process will allow
0: yeah and the grift often works pretty well um because these people do have and maybe you're and hopefully you're right is that uh, the polish of the experts is fading a bit because that's certainly what happened in 2008- 2009 was we need limitless spending to bail out uh, all the these finance people, these banks a trillion dollars in uh, easy loans for the banks to keep them in business even though they, they can't run a bank properly uh, and all of those bailouts that ensued, as well as QE, which, of course, was buy was printing billions in order to buy up mortgage-backed securities and government debt in order to keep the interest rate low. We were told you had to do all that or else there will be a recession and high unemployment. And then when we did get high unemployment anyway, and it took years for that job uh, market to recover, it was really 2014 or so by the time you got back to a normal you know, expansion sort of economy. We were told, oh, it would have just been much worse if you hadn't given us all that free money, if you hadn't let us do whatever we wanted. Uh, Well, what evidence? How much worse? How can you prove that? Well, they can't. All they they do is claim it would have just been worse if you didn't let us do whatever we want. And that's, of course, what they're going to do now. There's already a recession in the works. I mean, it's clear that, uh, like Deutsche Bank is saying, yeah, there's basically a hundred percent chance of recession at this point. When you look at countless indicators, you look at the uh, the Empire State Manufacturing Index, which is just massively in decline, well into recessionary territory. Uh, you look at uh, how much uh, banks are clawing back their loans, already deep in recessionary territory, and that's almost a, a foolproof indicator of recession. Boy, we could just point out 10 different indicators here, home prices. I mean, we could just keep going. What they're going to say then is that, oh, well, the economy's weakening, but the reason it's weakening is you didn't let us spend enough money. It was these negotiations that slowed things down. And uh, and it is going to be somewhat sellable as uh, a fake narrative because, as you say, right— The Treasury is going to prioritize paying off the creditors, you know, wealthy investors and their friends within the regime. They're going to get paid off first, no matter what. And so what that means then is the Treasury is going to prioritize that over uh, other types of spending in the economy. And so that will bring a short term, in fact, decline in GDP because GDP uh, is dependent on the way they calculate it involves government spending. And then suddenly people would save, uh, it would actually, they would shift then to a higher interest rate, a more savings based economy. And then that, that sort of thing, people planning for the future, people investing for the future doesn't show up in GDP. So then it's going to show as this big decline in the economy. And they're going to say, oh, look, you nuked the economy by not giving us enough money to spend. I mean, that's why here at the Mises Institute, right, we're just gonna have to keep explaining it over and over again is that, boy, if you're trying to blame the economic decline, which is is due to the Fed's inflationary, uh, monetary inflation, They're going to try and claim, though, that no, it's because there wasn't enough government spending. You didn't let us do what we wanted. And that's what they're going to try and do. And they're going to say, uh, boy, if you hadn't let us even give—if you hadn't let us uh, spend even the little bit you let us spend, everything would have been way, way worse. So no matter what, they're going to claim that things would have been better if you let the government spend more money. That's just—that's the narrative they always have. And that's what they always say And it is unmanageable at this point, because in reality, even if you let them keep spending the way they want, it's going to eventually just take over uh, more and more of the budget. And in my article, I look at some of the analysis here, and you see that the net interest on the debt is going to surpass defense spending by 2028. And at that point, we're talking about a trillion dollars and then Medicare spending, <laughs> it'll surpass in 2044. I mean, by mid century here. So, in 20 years from now, we're talking about uh, if, you, if you run the numbers based on uh, the Congressional Budget Office's uh, uh, estimates, by 2028, uh, the third largest, quote unquote, program in the federal government is just going to be paying uh, uh, interest. On the debt. The only things that will get more spending than interest on the debt is Social Security and Medicare back in 2020. So it's going to be more than defense. It's going to be more than all general poverty reduction stuff. Uh, if you divide out Medicaid, it's going to be more than Medicaid, uh, which, of course, includes Obamacare and all those massive amounts of new spending. And so a huge portion of your budget, by the time you get to mid-century, you're looking at 40 uh, percent of all federal revenues being spent on interest and the rest of that, that remaining 60% is then going to, have to be divided up into all of that social security, poverty, relief, uh, uh infrastructure, defense, everything, because that's all that's going to be left. So it's clearly unmanageable. So they're going to have to come back and, and at some point say, okay, well, we can only pay this back 90 cents on the dollar or 80 cents on the dollar. That would be the honest thing to do. What they're going to try and do is just inflate it all away. But what that's going to then do is drive more inflation. And so this attempt then to hide the real devaluation, the real default that's going on, is to do it in terms of inflating the currency. And what that does is that transfers the real burden from the investor class, which Yellen is going to make sure gets paid off, and then they are able to cover up for that by inflating the money supply which then puts the burden on regular people who now have unaffordable homes the first time home buyers can just forget about it sends up grocery prices uh your real wages are going down so you can see what the game is it's to default by this one way that is the inflationary default and not do any explicit honest default because that would actually cause uh the prices of bonds to go down and would cost money uh for as far as the investment class uh, is concerned. So that's what they want to do. They want to protect their friends and they want you as regular people to pay for it. And that's why they're going to try and keep that going as long as they can. But at some point with the mixture of inflation and as people begin to see that more and more of the federal budget is going to just paying interest on the debt year after year as their benefits are being cut, as popular political programs are being cut – to pay off the spending from past wars, from past uh, benefits um, for now long dead people, it's going to uh, start to become a real serious political problem. And it's hard to see how there's not gonna be even an explicit default at some point. And this is where, again, this is not
1: simply a problem that American policymakers have. This is an international problem that the, the seeds that were sowed over, you know, the pre-COVID period of keeping um, interest rates down so long with governments refusing to take advantage of that period to get their uh, the physical house in order to, to, to you know, make some of the grown-up decisions uh, that you know, there, there was no political will to make, right? It went just, just, again, think, remember the way that the Tea Party was portrayed and throwing Graham off a cliff with relatively uh, minor and modest changes to entitlement programs. Um, you know, think about the way that um, you know, uh, austerity was branded as, as, a, as a devil term in Europe um, with, with the same sort of seriousness behind it. Um, the, the, the refusal to do that has now created this situation. And, and the thing is that, so, so the, the other side of it, and this is where, you know, there, there is this, I think, hope within the political class of the Fed to pivot. You know, this is, this is getting, going back to, as my light falls down, um, another crisis to deal with. Um, dealing with this legislation by crisis, their goal has been to use um, the banking fallout, which is still not over, to try to force and beg the Fed um, to pivot on interest rate hikes, which contribute to this problem. Um, you know, I, I think that the 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 political pressure, Um, that you're going to see Powell under is only going to go up from there. Elizabeth Warren is going to use this to get on as many TV shows as perfectly as as humanly possible um, to try to portray this narrative that all of our issues come from, you know, an an extremist, overly dovish Fed, um, you know, that is trying to play catch up with the inflation issues that are still plaguing Americans. And you even had um, a a Minneapolis Fed president, Neil Kashkari, who is, you know, hardly— known as sort of a, a rigid, uh, you know, dovish sort of a figure out there. I mean, he is saying um, that interest rates will probably have to go higher still and for longer, um, given the way that inflation is cooperating. And so that whole pressure, this entire dynamic, um, is something that is is making the irresponsibility of, you know, the, the, the congressional side of things, the, the spending side of things, um, you know, the, the buffoonish Janet Yellen sort of approach to all this, um, even more difficult to deal with. And I think all of this is gonna fuel into, again, when it's coupled into this dynamic that we talk about all the time, and mentioned it earlier, this, this systemic uh, uh, my, widespread distrust of the expert class. Um, the downside of this, is, of course, th- th- this, this is exactly the sort of environment that can have um, very scary outcomes, um, because you know who who, who knows. Like you know, it's it's very easy to see, um, you know, very dangerous ideas arise from a, a period of crisis like that. And given, um, you know, the, the the mental state of you know, particularly young Americans right now. I mean, they're they're not exactly the people that you know you, you want to be trusting, making responsible decisions. On economic issues, um, uh, but like that—that is—I mean, we—we—we—we have we, created—they—they we, we have created, they, they have created they, this this very and in, you know, incredibly dangerous environment because of you know the purpose of the Mises Institute, right, is to improve the ideological intellectual um, conversation um, utilizing proper economics and not economic denialism. The the centrally long. Uh, poor state of of the economics discipline is all all of them are culpable for this dynamic, and there there is nothing, and, and I, I think maybe you know I'm I'm interested to see just how many policymakers recognize that there's nothing here that's going to save them. Um, now uh, they personally will be fine, right? Yeah, you know, they're they're, they'll, they're 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 you know retiring as millionaires. Their 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 kids are are make, having you know very nicely paid jobs. Um, you know, often being placed with the parasitic class that are the first benefiters of all of this government largesse. I, I do not weep from them, but I, I think that, um, you know, when you hear the, uh, uh, these politicians talk about this issue, they're, they're completely, um, at least publicly, blind to the just how, how, how tangled, this entire dynamic truly is, and what you're seeing is that, given this extreme difficulty and given the lack of political will and the lack of seriousness to try to devise a plan, the default option from Democrats right now has been entirely relying upon, um, you know, almost say a, a, a you know, Deus ex machina style solution from the heavens this is why you get people interested in the platinum coin idea that never seems to die this is why you have um, you know the the oafish John Fetterman stummering along in his hoodie talking about the 14th Amendment um, you know needing to be evoked to, to make sure that we're not dealing with these you know terrorist negotiators of the Kevin McCarthy type um, you know this is why you're seeing Democrats desperate to, once again, allow another one of these dominoes of political norms that is so, you know, that that, that have, um, you know, been baked into the system. None of which, of course, have protected us from getting us to this point. So I'm not, I'm not trying to to uh, uh, celebrate, um, you know, these these institutions that have existed. But yet, this is going to be yet. Uh, I I think that the inevitable outcome up here, you know maybe there is some sort of of compromise that even further waters down the McCarthy side of things. But I think it's just as likely that you're going to see enough tension built up where they're going to embrace, yet again, another unprecedented radical approach here that is able to, to, once again, allow Congress to kick away their responsibility to deal with this issue and allow just pure executive power um to find an out in the short term um, but of course there's nothing to deal with these these longer problems that are going to only be made worse over time um that uh, again no, no one in dc has any stomach to, to deal with if they have the awareness in the first place
0: all right well we'll go ahead and let that be the last word here on this episode of radio rothbard thank you for tuning in we will be back next time with another episode so we'll see you then